world is experiencing, as you know, an unprecedented increase in the average life expectancy and uh, population aging. Uh, can you describe this changing landscape, and, and what effect is it going to have on our lives? Well, it's a big question. Uh, I think that the basic answer is that it will affect all of our lives all over the world because it's a global phenomenon. It's not just in the USA. In fact, some of the countries that are experiencing experiencing the most rapid population aging are countries like Italy and Japan. Uh, but it's even true for the developing world that what's happening, and I'll make it very brief, the fertility rate is dropping on a global scale all over the planet. And what that means is that the proportion of older folks, let's say people 60, 65 plus, wherever you want to make the cutoff, uh, that proportion is increasing. And that's happening in the USA because uh, of the big bulge that we call the baby boom, people born between 1946 and 64. And right now, our proportion of our population, 65 plus, is going up from roughly 13% to close to 20%. That's one in five. Now, when people look at that phenomena, again, both in the U.S. and around the world, one reaction is to say, oh, my God, how can we afford all these old people? Uh, and part of that reaction is understandable because changes are being made and systems like Social Security and pensions and health care uh, to take account of the different shape of the population. Uh, but the other side of it that people frequently don't remember is that uh, uh, this is a huge opportunity for new work, uh, for new economic development, uh, because uh, this older population is a huge market. People 50-plus control something like 70% of the financial assets in this country. The other part of it is that people who are age 60, 65 are no longer ready for the scrap heap. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, I just saw a statistic today that the rate of employment for people 65 has increased by 50% in the last 15 years. That is, we've gone from something like 17% of men to something like 22% of men. So more and more people are working longer. They have to in many cases, and they're healthier. So I guess the bottom line message for me is that, yeah, we want to look at problems and challenges in health care and pensions, but we also want to look at an aging population as what my, my friend Mark Friedman calls our only infinitely renewable natural resource. Recycling the life cycle is what I call it. A quote that we both like, Rick, I've seen it uh, in your work, uh, I've used it as well, the notion of a human being, uh, a human being would certainly not grow to be 70 or 80 years old yes. uh, if this longevity had no meaning for the species. Yes. Um, how would you uh, describe that meaning of old age to uh, to someone who who was trying to figure out uh, how latter life uh, would be valuable? Well, I think the first point, the most important point, is that the rules of the game are changing, that what was true in the past may not be true in the future, first, because people are living longer or more people are living into old age, and second, because uh, they have, in many cases, a higher education level, and that means more interest in lifelong learning. And the key to lifelong learning is going to be how will this have a payoff for health promotion, we have to learn new ways of being healthier. How will it have a payoff for uh, work-life contribution, work-life extension? And maybe most important of all, how will it have a payoff for me? What do I want to learn? How do I want to continue to grow? Maybe it takes the form of travel. Maybe it takes the form of returning to hobbies and old interests. I'm spending a lot of time right now. I'm 65. 
uh, working on my piano, which I did when I was a teenager, and I'm going back to it. Everybody has in their closet, the back room of their life, things that they really wanted to get to, need to get to. And so I think there's two sides to this. Part of it is, and I think that's what Jung was getting at with this this quote, uh, what significance does this bonus have, this longevity bonus have? And it has two, significant, two kinds of significance. One is, for me personally, how do I develop myself, cultivate myself, uh, become the person I was meant to be? And the other side is, what is my continuing contribution to the world? Uh, how am I needed, the need to be needed, some people would call it. And again, that takes many different forms. Could be work, could be volunteerism, could be caregiving, uh, could just be being with others and social connection. So there's no one rule that applies to everybody, but what does apply is the general condition of this unexpected longevity bonus, uh, as my former boss and a colleague, mentor, Robert Butler, the late Robert Butler used to call it. And I think Bob was uh, one of the great visionaries who pointed to this, uh, what he called the longevity revolution. But it doesn't have one form. It doesn't have one shape. And everybody will have to find their own way through the landscape. Uh, Rick, Gertrude Stein uh, believed that we are always the same age inside. Uh, mm. Do you agree with that? And, and, and after a certain point in our lives, are our personalities set? Well, a couple of questions there. They're very good questions. Uh, I, I used to be, my wife and I used to be caregivers for seven years for a dear friend of ours, Larry Morris, who died in our midst at the age of 97. And I had many conversations with Larry, all, obviously, all through his 90s. And sometimes he would say to me, you know, Rick, I, I feel just like uh, I did when I was 20. Uh, so there's some truth to that, that there is part of the self which is timeless. Uh, but there's another part which is maybe based on denial or you know, plastic surgery, reluctance to admit where we are in the life course. And I think that uh, denial is not a good thing, but feeling engaged, uh, even timeless, uh, looking forward to life with enthusiasm, that is a good thing. With regard to your question about personality, um, I think one of the clear findings of psychological science is that what we call personality, which is really a matter of temperament, is largely stable over the course of life. People's occupation may change, their social relationships change, but if they have a temperament to be introverted, for example, or to be extroverted, uh, that tendency tends to remain the same, even from infancy on. That doesn't mean people can't learn. doesn't mean they can't change. In fact, one of the great discoveries of, of uh, geropsychology, the psychology of aging, one of the great discoveries has been that the brain uh, does not necessarily decline as we grow older. There's a, a wonderful neuropsychologist, Colin Goldberg, who uh, wrote a book called The Wisdom Paradox, how the brain can, the mind can go, grow stronger as the brain grows older. So, yes, we lose some things, but we gain other things. So the answer to the question about personality is that, yes, we, we have much the same personality, but, but we may go down different roads with that personality. And in that sense, uh, it's not the case that we're timeless. We may even have greater freedom in later life. This is what we learn from the great artists like uh, Louise Nevelson or Picasso or Rembrandt. Uh, some of those great artists, not all of them, but many of them develop a kind of radical freedom and self-expression that, that they would not have been able to have earlier in their lives. Author Mary uh, Sarton wrote that the, the trouble is that old age is not interesting until one gets there. Um, the idea is, is that when you're young, um, it's often an unknown language. 
Do you concur with her assertion, Rick? And if so, what can be done to help college students better connect with their futures? I think the key lies in life stories. And, um, you know, when I was a caregiver for Larry Morris, uh, which I was, as I said, for seven years, I did a whole oral history of his life, and he worked as a, uh, an ambulance driver on World War I on the, on, the, on the front of World War I. Well, how else could anybody get an education in history like that than by listening to the words of somebody who was actually there? So I think there's some truth to this, that the young cannot really imagine old age. And I say that as I'm 65 myself, and obviously I have a different view of life than I might have at 25. But the one thing that was true for me at 25, that's why I got into the aging field, is that I was fascinated by the life stories of older people. And again, not all older people, not everybody knows how to tell their story in a way which is effective, but, but they can learn. And everybody has valuable stories to share. And I think that when we can connect those stories with young people, uh, we really can make an intergenerational linkage. And that's the way that we're going to make progress in this area, not, not by sort of preaching to people that they should have, you know, respect your elders or something like that. I don't, I don't think that really works very well. But I, I'm actually very optimistic about the intergenerational work and what can come from that. If, uh, if Rick, the last stage of life is the result of all the stages that, uh, that come before, what can college students do now to invest in a happier future? Uh, what, and what role can, quite frankly, can higher education play? Well, let me be very prosaic about it. I wish I'd taken better care of my gums when I was in college. Uh, and I wish when I was younger I knew more about savings and the importance of the magic of compound interest. And so I'm going to talk about two very concrete things, namely money and health. And I think that uh, there's a lot that college students can do to be thinking about their own lives from a long-term perspective. What often happens is that college students may say, oh, you know, I'll think about that later, which is perfectly understandable. But um, there are good things that you can do by changing now to prepare for the future. After all, why are you in college in the first place? You're acquiring skills, knowledge, whatever you want to call it, human capital that will pay off in the future. But I would add to that investing in oneself, in one's own self-development. And by that, I mean both body, mind, and spirit. Uh, part of it means not becoming too narrow. And one of the great things we learn from the stories of uh, older people is the importance of flexibility. You know, I think it was John Lennon, whose 70th birthday, if he had lived, he would have been 70 years old uh, very soon, uh, once said, uh, life is is uh, what happens when we're preparing for something else and we're planning for other things, but life happens to us. And that's another way of saying that, that people who are young need to be prepared for lots and lots of changes that we can't even predict. We can't even predict. And that means that uh, there's a danger in being too narrow in your education and your training, as it would be called, specialization. It's necessary to specialize, of course, but it's also necessary to be thinking about what happens beyond the next horizon. And that's where the stories of older people can be very helpful to give clues, not, not to imitate them, but to see how they have adapted to change. So I think that um, we need to be thinking and helping students in very prosaic ways in terms of health and, and money, but we also need to be widening their perspective to to imagine uh, what life may be like in the future. Not to predict the future, we can't do that, uh, but to think of the life course 
and that's of course how we try to think about this in the field of aging these days, not that old age is something separate from the rest of life, but as you quite rightly pointed out, it is the culmination, the result of all sorts of things that have gone before. Until recently, Rick, we humans spent time with people of all generations. Uh, but today, uh, many young people aren't as likely to have much contact with old people until until they're relatively old themselves. Uh, what price are we paying for this age segregation, if you will? Well, I do think we pay a price. Uh, I, I'm not against it in all forms. For example, the Elder Hostel program has been uh, is now known as uh, – Road Scholar, but it's the same program, basically, uh, later life education. There is a place for people to gather together, whether for learning or in, in retirement facilities and so forth with people their own age. I'm not against that. But I also think that we may be missing something in terms of the intergenerational ties, and that, that's where colleges can actually make a big contribution to uh, uh, encouraging that, for example, through internship programs and in-service training and things like that where where the students actually get out and, and talk to people of a more advanced age. Uh, so that's important, and, and if we don't do that, you see, then the students uh, really don't develop uh, a picture of who they might be uh, for good or for ill, uh, and, and both are part of it. There's, there's warnings that one can can take away from talking to. I, I spent uh, some time a couple of years ago talking to a 114-year-old woman, um, one of the oldest people in America, obviously. Um, and uh, what she told me about her life uh, was a whole list of surprises. So I, I think that's uh, that's a very important dimension of this: uh, to be prepared for surprises. And that's one of the things that the old can teach the young. Traditional cultures, Rick, have tended to uh, prize their older members. Uh, why is this not a stronger characteristic in our own culture, and what does it uh, potentially say about us? Well, I think the truth of the matter is that we've had a kind of uh, negative attitudes towards age in Western culture, going back to the Greeks. Uh, you can actually look at uh, Greek literature and, and see this, that uh, there's a real skepticism and an idealization of youth, and that comes up in the Renaissance, and it's picked up again in the 20th century. But I don't think that cultural history is the core of the problem. I think the, the core of the problem is that for many, many people today, what they've learned in their lives, for example, in the workplace, can become obsolete. Uh, just give one example. Uh, how many people listening to this conversation know or even have, have heard of the term Fortran? Fortran a computer language that was widely used in the 50s and 60s, like COBOL and other ones. A lot of these languages for software programming are completely obsolete. So people, let's say software engineers or others who spent their time uh, mastering some of those skills, they may have nothing to contribute based on those skills themselves. And I could make the same case about a lot of different occupational activities. So many, many uh, occupations become obsolete. Think of travel agents, for example. Yes, they're still travel agents, but the Internet has made a lot of that work uh, obsolete. And I think that one of the uncomfortable truths that we have to deal with, those of us who are old and those who want to become old, is that many of the skills, much of the knowledge that you acquire in college or during your career will become obsolete in five or ten years, much rapid much more rapid rate of, of knowledge obsolescence. 
And that means that we have to step back and say, well, wait a minute, what is it that I've learned that actually uh, does have continued value? It's one of the big challenges, by the way, uh, with older workers, that uh, if they've done the same thing for 20, 25 years, and they say, well, this is what I know how to do. Well, it may be that's what you know how to do, but the economy no longer demands it or wants it. So I don't see the, the skepticism or, or uh, negative attitudes towards the old, a failure to appreciate or you know, value the old. I don't see that so much of as, a, as a conspiracy or a, you know, a negative culture as part of, partly a result of the, the techno-economic life that we're living in, a, in the 21st century. And we, we have to simply accept that, that you know, there are many things that people have to learn and relearn. I'm coming back to that point about lifelong learning. Um, I don't have a very good mastery myself of um, how to produce videos on a computer or edit them. It's something that I'm going to have to learn, and I'm trying to learn. And all of us are constantly in that position. That's the reason why I stressed with the students, and this gets back to the value of liberal education. If liberal education really is what it's supposed to be, it will give you skills of critical thinking that never become obsolete because you can apply them always to new situations and you're always prepared for surprises. So that's the most important thing that I think students can get from their education and I think it's um, something that will never, never disappear in its value. In your book, uh, Rick, The Five Stages of the Soul, you write that uh, everyone, especially kind of in those middle years, uh, takes an interest in spiritual life, uh, more or less uh, goes through a series of stages that you've identified uh, five of them to be exact. Could you briefly describe the passage that uh, that you have uh, that you have researched? Well, what I try to describe is something that uh, people sometimes call midlife crisis. It doesn't really exist. It, uh, better to describe it as midlife transition, and it really arises at the time, usually in midlife, when people realize that that they've gotten what they've wanted, or that they're never going to get what they wanted. Either way. Uh, they raised the what I call the Peggy Lee question. Peggy Lee had a song that says, is this all there is? Uh, and when people ask that question in one way or another, and it may come in lots of different ways, uh, that's a moment that I describe as the call. Now, people respond to it in different ways. Some people press the snooze alarm and want to go back to sleep and say, well, of course this is all there is, or I don't care, there can't be anything more. But if they, if they deepen that question within themselves and say, wait a minute, there must be more to life than what I've experienced so far, security, good job, health, relationships, whatever, then they move on to that stage which I call the search, which is really a question for, for people who are looking for guidance, whether it's in therapy or religion, takes lots of different forms. They, they, they want to find the book that will help them or the teacher or the group or the faith practice, whatever it may be. And if they pursue this in any depth, they will find that uh, a path does not necessarily lead to immediate happiness, but it leads to a struggle, a struggle in themselves to come to know themselves, to ask the question, who am I really, uh, when all is said and done? And that struggle, if successful, may result in insights, uh, sometimes very profound insights, profound experiences that, that I call breakthrough experiences. Uh, but having an insight, having a breakthrough, having having a transformative experience even, uh, is not the end of the journey. Uh, we're always challenged to take that insight, that experience, and bring it back into our everyday life, uh, which is what I call the return. So if you think of these five uh, stages of the soul, uh, they really are different ways in which we deepen our own relationship with ourselves. 
And uh, it's true that everybody has this opportunity. Alas, it's not true that everybody goes through all five stages of the soul. Some people are fearful. Some people don't want to ask those deep questions. And frankly, we don't always have an atmosphere or a social structure or a support group that will enable us to ask those questions. And that's why it's important to have books like this. That's why it's important to have groups, whether in a church or therapy, whatever form it takes. There are many, many different paths. But um, these stages of the soul, which are, by the way, not entirely original with me, I mean, uh, there's many great writers like uh, James Hillman and Thomas Moore and Joseph Campbell uh, who have talked about this. And uh, they've talked about it because it is a, a process that, that is very, very widespread, if not universal. You have also, Rick, studied dreams extensively. And yes. if you could comment a little bit, about, for those who aren't familiar with that type of work, uh, how, did, how do dreams work? What can they tell us about ourselves? How do they differ as we age? Well, the most important thing to say about dreams is that all human beings dream, all of us dream, even if we don't remember our dreams. In fact, all mammals dream. Uh, so dreaming seems to serve some profound purpose because it takes up so much of our, our energy and our life when we're sleeping. And one speculative answer to that is that dreams at their best help us to process our lives and therefore to make sense of our lives, of our experiences. And sometimes when we remember our dreams, they can provide us with insights into where we are. I like it. I compare it to a, a global positioning system, a GPS like you might have in your car. A dream, a very powerful dream, can give you a map and tell you where you are that you might not know. You might feel lost in your life, for example, in a relationship or in your job or you're coping with illness or you may be depressed, many, many different uh, situations in our lives, and uh, sometimes dreams can give us a clue as to where we are. Now, of course, just like a GPS, uh, a dream may not necessarily tell us what to do next. Should I take the job or not? Uh, should I break off this relationship or continue it? Uh, but but dreams can give us an insight into a deeper part of ourselves that's always working. It's always going on there. We call it the unconscious, and. Um, my view is that people uh, do well to pay attention to their dreams. Dreams can can sometimes be very, very helpful. Uh, Gene Cohen, who is a, a, a gentleman I know that you are familiar with, um, identified four developmental stages of, of later life. Uh, one of uh, these is the summing up phase, and I, you know, I'm interested in what your thoughts are. Uh, how difficult it might be for individuals that when they reach that stage of life. Uh, to have found that their lives were 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 meaningless or purposeless for for uh, for many reasons. Uh, how difficult is that stage for those individuals? Well, I think you put your finger on a very big problem. And Gene Cohen, who who died just a year ago, uh, it was great loss his his death to our field because he was. Uh, I knew Gene personally, and I greatly admired him both as a human being and also his, his published work on creativity. But I think one of the things he was describing there in terms of the summing up phase is uh, some of the people who, particularly great artists, writers, thinkers, who, who look back and, and try to uh, put their lives uh, in, in, in a pattern, in a meaning. Uh, but I would widen it and talk about the psychologist Eric Erickson, who, who of course, described the the crisis or the challenge, the question of the, the, the last stage of life is what he called ego integrity versus despair. 
And um, I think that, uh, and he, he, he believed, Erickson believed that the great virtue of this uh, stage of life, potentially, is wisdom. Now, the example that I would give of this, and, and that's actually an example that Gene Cohn gave in a, a wonderful published article about uh, the very familiar novel and film, The Christmas Carol. We all know The Christmas Carol. It's a very popular film, very popular book by Charles Dickens. And the, the central character of that book is Scrooge. And Ebenezer Scrooge is in the book and in the film an old man. And he's a, a, an old man who has basically lost hope. He, he lives his life according to habit. And it's really only the threat of death uh, when, when uh, the ghost of his partner, uh, Jacob Marley, comes to visit him at night in a dream, you see. So the whole of, of the book, of the Christmas Carol, is all about a dream. And actually what happens in the dream is that uh, a Scrooge goes through the five stages of the soul. Uh, he has a call. Jacob Marley comes to him and rouses him and says, listen, time is running short. I now know this because I'm dead. And Scrooge has to uh, visit the various ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. These are the guide figures in him, the guru, the teacher. And that process of search leads him to a struggle, a very profound struggle, in the last uh, of the dreams that he has in which he contemplates his own death uh, and sees his tombstone and realizes time is short. And that moment is the, is the breakthrough. Uh, the struggle results in a profound breakthrough of insight. But it isn't the end of the story, because Scrooge, what happens to Scrooge is that the next day he shows up at his office, and uh, uh, there he is uh, sitting in his office, and uh, uh, the father of Tiny Tim is there. And uh, instead of Scrooge just being the same old guy, this sort of broken-down, depressed, uh, habit-bound character, instead he's become a new man, a new person. He's given a new lease on life. And I think the reason why The Christmas Carol is so popular uh, for all of us is that it, it, it conveys a sense of hope, that it's never too late, never too late. Scrooge had to face that, that terrible dichotomy, that terrible dualism, ego integrity versus despair. Have I lived the life that I wanted to live? And, of course, Scrooge's answer was a kind of despair, kind of depression, that's what Gene Cohn describes it, actually, and it was, he described this as a case study in depression, Scrooge. But depression isn't, isn't the end of the story, because what happens by going through these five stages of the soul and these, this dream work of the Christmas Carol, Scrooge uh, achieves a breakthrough and a form of integration, which, after all, is what ego integrity is all about, being able to say yes to life. Thank you, Rick. I if you were to speak directly to college students um, and uh, and try to tell them, obviously, the notion of what they could be doing now, the key ingredients to happiness that they can lay the foundation for during the time they're here at the university, um, what would you say to them? <laughs> uh, what I'd say to them is uh, follow your follow your bliss, follow your passion, find the thing in yourself which... Uh, is where you can really contribute to the world and to contribute to yourself. Uh, you may not get paid for it right away. Uh, I, I've forgotten a woman who wrote a book called uh, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. Well, it's not always true for people in, for example, acting or theater or music or many other fields. Uh, we don't always get paid for following our bliss, uh, but we need to remember it. Um, and uh, there may be ways in which people can actually make their passion, their strength, 
uh, a source of livelihood. That, after all, is what a lot of people do in entrepreneurship and creating a business. And it's why so many uh, younger people, as well as older people, want to establish their own business. They don't just want to be their own boss. That's important, of course. But they want to find a way to contribute uh, their best, their best self to the world. And that's what we call vocation. So that the college students really need to be paying attention to vocation, not what does the employment market look like today, but what is my calling? Where do I belong in the world? And uh, that, that's the, the voice that they need to listen to, and that, that's where the word vocation comes from, actually. It means a call. So uh, they may not find it right away. Uh, it may take uh, – I have uh, myself, I have uh, two kids, a daughter, uh, 25, and a, a son who's 22. Both of them have jobs, but they're working out their own vocation, and that's something that may take them years to find out. Uh, that's a good thing. That's, that's <laughs> it's one of the great strengths of America as a society, that – that we believe that it's never too late for people to go back to school, to change, to find a new direction in life. And what we're doing now is extending that into later life for older people. We need to give the same message to young people. Finally, Rick, um, one last question. I, I'm creating a set of Ten Commandments uh, for the course. Uh, uh, on the website, you've probably seen uh, all the people that I've interviewed to date have answered one common question. And that is, uh, this list, uh, I guess, is a, is looking at uh, a unique approach to higher education. And if you were to add one commandment to today's university classroom, something that would be abided by, by all students at institutions everywhere, what would it be? One commandment. Uh, I guess my commandment would be focus on the learning that will have value for the long run and uh, be prepared for uh, a lot of things that you learn will become obsolete very, very quickly. And therefore, you need to pay attention to the things that do not become obsolete. I'll just give you one very prosaic example. Writing. People don't know how to write. Speaking. They don't know how to speak to give public speeches. Reading. They don't know how to read critically. I'm, being a, I'm giving a vast generalization here when I say they don't know. Of course, many students know very well. But um, whatever those skills may be, and I would add to this, this uh, if you want to call it a skill, of investing in yourself, uh, that is investing in who you are and who you might become, the person you were meant to be, as I like to call it. Um, that whole series of questions and of skills that's what education needs to be focusing on, not how can I learn some facts or, you know, accumulate something to pass a course or get a credential or get a job or anything else like that, because all of those things go away eventually. And uh, you need to focus on what has enduring value. Well, Rick, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and a pleasure to share your work with my students. Thank you, David. Thank you very much.